everyone, welcome back to But Why Though the Podcast, and with the new HBO show out, we are covering His Dark Materials. As always, I'm Kate, and I'm here with Adrian. Hey, how's it going? And Matt. Hello. And we have a super, super special guest, Aaron. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so, Aaron, this is your first time guessing on our pod, so why don't you tell the listeners where you're from? And I, why you're here. I am originally from Liverpool, England. Uh been over here for god 14 14 years ah oh, see i was gonna go into my whole biography and i was, had this whole speech lined up and i mean if uh, you would like to do that feel <laughs> no, free. another podcast, another podcast. <laughs> uh yeah so i'm originally uh, i'm from the ned social club podcast so uh, we've been with you guys eight months six months something like How's that has it been that long i think so i don't know time flies oh i'm a parent god. i just I just happy I make it one day at a time. To be honest, <laughs> I've lost track of these last four months. They've just all blurred together. <laughs> uh, so, what is Nerd Social Club podcast? Uh, we review the news of the week, and we basically do uh, similar things to what you guys do. But why though? We do um, show reviews, movie reviews, any kind of fan casts, uh, casting news that's gone on. We talk about streaming an awful lot, probably more than we should. Um, talk about anything marvel dc just get into everything that like happens through the week we just kind of fan out and talk about different theories and all sorts so we, we have had a lot of fun with it it's very uh very down to earth and i uh podcast with my my co-host ped mcpartland who uh stays up ungodly hours in liverpool and i'm in uh, pennsylvania so it's two english people in different continents so it's, it's good fun that's really cool um so why uh why are you here to talk about his dark materials because i started being british <laughs> <laughs> because i've read the books watched the movie and watched the very first episode of the show and i love this series because it's fantastic it's got so many weird elements to it the further you go on so i uh it's just something different it's very very different to a lot of things that are out there Awesome. And that goes perfectly into our question to start off the episode. Do you know what His Dark Materials is? Absolutely not. I have no idea what I'm doing here, and I don't know anything <laughs> other than this HBO show popped up now, and Kate's like, we're doing an episode, and here comes Aaron. I'm like, what? <laughs> Were you in crafting? I have no idea. I'm going <laughs> to learn today. <laughs> you just ask if he's crafting? Uh, how's he do, how's he doing on the auction houses? Is his material selling? Does he need to sell out? What is, is he doing? Is this a rare material? Would you say? it's a dark material. <laughs> Adrian. Um. So I didn't know what. So this is one of those situations where everyone is talking about his dark or his dark materials during like the Game of Thrones thing. And I was like, what is that? That sounds that's a stupid title for whatever that is. Is he crafting? Uh, and then I saw the trailer with uh, Daphne King and I was like, oh, it's the polar bear movie from like 2000, whatever. And then I learned that this is like a whole thing. But I, don't know, I guess we'll talk about it later. But I I remember the movie. I thought the movie was pretty cool with all the different elements and then like the big polar bear fight and stuff. Um would I have seen a second one? Probably. And I don't know why I didn't, but I'm sure we'll find out oh, if it's good or not from book you. readers. <laughs> uh, but I thought it was fine. I just like how you call this the polar bear movie. That's about <laughs> it's, I mean, 
what I guess other than Narnia, maybe like where else do you see giant polar bears fighting stuff in movies? I think I think to be fair, if someone had said, "Hey, have you seen that polar bear movie?" I probably would have thought of the Golden Compass. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I like, that is that wrong a descriptor? I'm pretty sure I have like the DVD somewhere, like my, my dad's old collection that he gave me. I'm pretty sure it just has like the big polar bear on the front in armor, and I think that's what like got people to pick that movie up. To be fair, I feel like we all have or know people who have bought in-game bears with armor to ride around in MMOs. So, I have yeah, one. definitely. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I have two. <laughs> Neverwinter, yeah. right? No, I have a mini so I have the I have the polar bears. Yeah, I have polar bears and wow. So like, yeah, it's definitely. It's all relevant. I also crafted very well in a lot of dark materials in ESO. Oh my god. He did. He did. This is going to be the and thread now. This is the theme of the show. <laughs> Not with crafting jokes. Yeah, but that but anyway, like that's that that's my extent. Like I've watched the movie and I know it's like kind of this fantasy kind of thing which I'm all for. So I think once episodes start building up, we're going to kind of like binge binge the new one. Unless like someone tells me that it's like a good week to week show, I'm just going to binge it all cuz it is a cool Cool sounding universe. I'm kind of excited to learn more about uh, the backstory and stuff. I don't do week to week anymore. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I'm reviewing his dark materials, and that's the only reason why I'm watching it week to week. Because I'm waiting for Watchmen to finish so I can binge it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm doing that. With like all these like new shows, everyone's talking about. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I lived through the CW verse. I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Game of Thrones um, is over. I don't care. <laughs> um, so since I'm leading this episode and I decided on this episode, it, you can probably infer that I know what his Dark Materials is. <laughs> um, and I know what it is because it got banned in my, in my Catholic school that I went to. Um, the first book. And because it got banned, I really, really wanted to read it. And at that time, my mom, like, dropped me off at the library while she'd, like, go run errands. And so I found it at the library and I read the first one. Um, and I was fairly young at that time. And then I read the other ones probably, like, senior year of high school. I finished reading. I read the first one and then read all of them. So it's been, it's been, a, it's been a minute since I've, I've read the stories. Um, but I have a synopsis that I'll get into after we finish the history, just to kind of like let everybody know what's going on. But uh, this is probably one of my favorite fantastical universes, and a lot of that has to do with the the fact that Philip Pullman, who wrote the books, deals a lot in as much as he deals with fantasy, he also deals with like magical realism, so stuff that is really close to how we know it. He only uh, only he shifts it a bit. Um, so that's that's the really cool element that I really like. Um, but with that, we'll get into the history. Um, so His Dark Materials is the name of an epic trilogy of fantasy novels by Philip Pullman, consisting of The Northern Lights, which was released in 1995, and it was published, uh, published as The Golden Compass in North America, The Subtle Knife, which was released in 1997, and then The Amber Spyglass, which was released in 2000. It follows the coming of age of two children, Lyra Bellacroix um, and Will Perry, as they wander through a series of parallel universes. His Dark Materials has, market, uh, has been marketed to young adults, though Pullman wrote with no target audience in mind. 
The fantasy elements include witches and armored polar bears, which is probably my favorite thing. Um, <laughs> and the trilogy also alludes to concepts from physics, philosophy, and theology. It functions in part as a retelling of uh, James, uh, John Milton's epic Paradise Lost, as well as an inversion of it. Uh, with Pullman commending humanity for what Milton saw as its most tragic failing, original sentence. Do y'all know what Paradise Lost is? I do not. Um, it's been a while. At one time, I did. Okay. I've also been had time change and drank a lot, so it's yeah. <laughs> I think those would correlate. Okay. Uh, so Paradise Lost is an epic. Um, so an epic is just a very, very, very long poem uh, from, I think it's 1600s. Um, and essentially what it is, is it is an exploration. It's a, it's ranged into 12 books and it is essentially an exploration of Adam and Eve. Um, and it explores original sin, Satan, and the Garden of Eden. And essentially what it does is it's part of this uh you know dante's inferno like that kind of stuff it's part of this uh religious fantasy works that get published um so a lot of the times when you're being when you are told to read paradiso or, or the divine comedy in general so the three books um from uh from from dante you you are also paired paradise loss because it mirrors that um and so there is this long tradition with, which is one of the interesting things about the trilogy, um, in that it's so staunchly against religion, but it inverts one of religion's largest fantastical works. Um, yeah, so that's a, a little very reductionist explanation of what Paradise <laughs> Lost is. I can see the connections though as you're going through. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So it's it's hard. So I have to ask. How deep are we going in with spoilers as well? We're going into spoilers, at least for the books, because adaptations, one, I don't think adaptations are ever like the books, and I do think that we kind of got to go into a little bit of what the books talk about. Um, we can cut them back, though, if you don't want to. Your show, your call. I'm, I'm good to dive in. <laughs> okay. I mean, I've seen the first movie, so I basically know everything about the entire series <laughs> at this point, right? Giant polar bears. Good. <laughs> that's, it. that's it. It gets so much weirder. It does. It like after that first book, it just just full throttle into weird. Like not that the first book isn't weird, but like the last two are like something substantially fantastical and weird. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Pullman also followed the trilogy with two shorter books set in the same universe, titled Lyra's Oxford, which came out in 2003, and Once Upon a Time in the North, that came out in 2008. La Belle Sauvage, the first book in the new trilogy, The Book of Dust, was published in, uh, October of 2017, and it was followed by The Secret, the Secret Commonwealth, which was followed in October 2019. So we're not going to cover those books mainly because those are the newer works. And while they're within this 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 world of his dark materials, the 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 franchise or the series doesn't really encompass them. So we're only going to focus on the first three, which are Northern Lights or The Golden Compass, as I read it, uh, The Subtle Knife, and The Ember Spyglass. What, Matt? Hmm? 
What do you think? The Borealis, or whatever. Aurora Borealis? Yes. The Northern Lights. Was that a yeah, thing? That, that's a, that's a thing. <laughs> yes. Connections. <laughs> Do you know about the polar bears? <laughs> so, uh, in the first book, we follow uh, 11-year-old Lyra Bellacroix, who in Jordan College, Oxford, uh, with her demon um, Pantamalian, which is Pan for short. <laughs> it's easier that way. Um, I'm also going to butcher a lot of these names. <laughs> Let's get that out. Hey, right you can there. fact check it. I'm here. <laughs> I, I'm just going to I'm going to go up to a name and I'm going to ask you to pronounce it. Okay. I'm not going to some yeah. of these names are even I re- remember reading these like I'm not going to I just don't know how to say that. <laughs> especially especially when you get to the polar bears. <laughs> and there's a reason for that, which we'll get into, which is actually a really cool reason um okay uh so while they're in oxford oxford uh lyra and pan witness the master who is in charge of the of the jordan college where she's where she's at attempt to poison lord asriel and lyra's uh who is lyra's rebellious and adventuring uncle she then warns asriel uh then spies on his lecture about dust mysterious uh, elementary particles so in the world of uh his dark materials dusts i believe is it's like sin essentially but it's it only appears around adults and it's like this really really cool thing um i was thinking of dark matter but that's totally not where we were going apparently so i mean you're not it, it it's weird so like dusts are like these like metaphysical particles but because the church plays a huge part in defining what they're called and, and what they originate from, they say that dust is original sin because it only is around adults. But then that dust is also used to teleport between, or not teleport, but like pass through different dimensions or parallel universes. The, the books um, kind of like make this like parallel, this marriage between like science and religion and science and myth. And it kind of just spins throughout the whole series. So... You see it from different elements constantly, uh, which is very cool, the different perspectives of it. Um, so, yeah. Uh, then you have Lyra's friend, Roger, who is kidnapped by child abductors known as the Gobblers, which all the kids think are these myths, and then the parents are like, oh, no, no, no. They're real. <laughs> They're not jokes. Um, and after that, Lyra is adopted by a charming socialite named Mrs. Coulter, and the master secretly entrusts her with an uh, alethiometer? Alethiometer. Alethiometer. See? It's, like British, <laughs> it's like, say aluminum. Aluminium. <laughs> um, and, and this alethiometer is what we know as the golden compass. Um, it's not really a compass, which is why it's not really used anywhere else because uh, the alethiometer is a gadget that can essentially tell when somebody's telling the truth. Um, then I guess it's in a way a compass, not really. Anyway. Um, a truth compass. Yeah, always points to truth, but it's weird. Is <laughs> <laughs> so, this like Pirates of the Caribbean where the compass goes to where your heart desires? No. Oh. It's a, it's it's kind of weirdly more complex, but like as Lyra wields it, kind of understand it a bit more. But it's 
almost like I, I, it's like a connection she has with it as well like as you kind of read through it yeah because i like get first it doesn't work when she first like tries to use it but then like the it's like a it's learning between the two of them between the compass and her essentially that's how i took it yeah yeah it's all magical matt this is fantasy um uh then lyra discovers that coulter is actually the leader of the gobblers who are church-funded abduct abductors of children so that they can perform uh experiments on them uh yeah Lyra ends up fleeing to the Egyptians, the canal-faring nomads whose children have also been abducted. Uh, so the Egyptians form an expedition to the Arctic with Lyra to rescue the children. Lyra recruits Lorik Berenson, the armored bear, and his human aeronaut friend, Lee Scoresby, who is played by Lin-Manuel Miranda in so happy about the TV that. show. It's going to be so good. Um... She also learns that Lord Azrael has been exiled, guarded by the Vares on Svalbard, um, near Bolvingar, the Gobbler Research Station. Uh, Lyra discovers an abandoned child who has been cut from his daemon, um, and in the world of his dark materials, daemon function kind of like with the familiars. They're souls that are in the animals, and they pair to a human, essentially. I don't know if you have a better description of them, Aaron. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I think it's it's a pretty good description, but I think the interesting part is like how the um, daemons mirror kids uh, up until like what the I think it's I forget like exactly how they describe it within the books, but once they reach like I don't want to say adulthood, but once they reach like some sort of like maturity, like thirteen, fourteen, uh, the Daemons can actually change shape or change uh, change animals, so they're constantly changing. Like kids are constantly changing as they grow and mature. So once they hit that like um, that maturing age, they stay in one form, and that's kind of like your that's your daemon then kind of moving forward. So, and they have it kind of mirror. It's kind of cool. Like I I love the way in the books where as you kind of learn about the daemons, you start to see other people around with daemons. So like you see the servants at Jordan College and how they've all got um it, was it Labradors, Kate? The dog the the servants yes. all have dogs, the Labradors, they all kind of stand to attention. So it's almost like you're able to see some of the daemon be able to kind of like infer about their personality types or who they are and you know the the jobs they serve. Yeah, because uh Azrael has it's a snow leopard, right? Yeah. That thing is fierce. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then uh, Miss Coulter has the. Um, I, I know they just always describe it as an orange monkey, so I don't know exactly what. Is it point. actual? Is it? Is it a macaque? I'm going to point that question to Matt, who's the zoo expert. A golden? It's a tamarin. Ah. That's what it is. It's a tamarin. I am looking at Earth and Worlds. Uh, 15 types of monkeys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's essentially like that monkey is conniving and just awful. Um, and so essentially what happens 
is Lyra and the children end up getting rescued by Scoresby, Loric, uh, the Egyptians, and Seraphina P- uh, Pakala's flying uh, flying witch clan. So like they essentially like aeronauts. They have like these big kind of like Zeppelin like. Uh, if you saw the, if you saw the polar bear movie, um, it's like a big Zeppelin thing that they fly around. Um, and the end of this book essentially ends with uh, Azriel exiled from the church, going to research the dust and essentially like destroy it and destroy the source. And Lyra ends up taking up the quest to essentially stop Azrael and to discover the purpose of it herself um, at the end of the first uh, the first uh, the first book. Um, and so like the book series really follows like that Joseph Campbell like hero's journey. like she's born into greatness and then she hears the call and then she you know faces all these things. Um, and then in the subtle knife, uh, Lyra journeys through Azrael's opening between worlds to Sidagazi. I'm gonna guess this. yes, because I think it, it. I think the translation for it is like, see, uh, what was it? There's a translation for it, and it's like see by the coast or something like that. I think that's what that means. Ah, uh, okay. Um, that's essentially this otherworldly city whose denizens have discovered a clean path between worlds at a far earlier point in time than the others in the storyline, which uh, the easiest way to explain it's kind of like a Bifrost. Yes. <laughs> That's like the easiest like context. Um, and essentially like the Sidagazi's reckless use of technology has released a soul, the release soul leading specters to which children are immune. And this has to do with the fact that children don't have dust around them. Um, rendering much of the world incapable of transit uh, by adults. And this is where Lyra ends up meeting Will Perry, who's a 12-year-old boy from our world, Lyra's world. Um, and yeah, like the essentially, like this is where it gets really, really big. And this is like the, this is when you get to see what's beyond everything else in this fantastical world. Because up in, in the first book, I would say like, 99% of it is just this magical realism element where it all looks like our world. There are just pieces that are different and there are some things that are magical. And then when you go into the subtle knife, it's all freaking magical and it's all different. And it's where you really hit like almost this high fantasy bar versus like a low fantasy or like this magical realist element to it. Um, well, and it's interesting as well because, like, so with the subtle knife, you start off with kind of like Will's story, and Will's story set in our universe, and then he, you know, through some actions, ends up hitting through a a portal. I, I forget exactly how it works, but he kind of is like running away from from these these people who are chasing him who are after his um his abandoned father's um letters i think it is and he yeah. just kind of runs away and like through some sort of back alley he ends up in a in a completely different universe and then all of a sudden that's kind of like the doorway for the story as well that you suddenly go okay you're following will like he's the narrator and then you're just into these odd worlds where you're trying to figure out what what is going on like uh so you kind of like it's almost like a 
an RPG game, like as you're kind of going through and you're picking up pieces of uh, evidence to try and figure it out along the way. So it was kind of, it was fun reading that, that story for the, uh, the subtle knife. And like one of the like really cool arching factor, like overarching factors and themes is this idea of like the church and the magisterium uh, essentially working to control their, in, contr to control the universe and control what people can see and control what people can experience. Um, and that's something that like, uh, the first episode of the TV show, like, jumps into really quick. Mm. It establishes that, like, really, really well. Um, and in The Amber Spyglass, which is the third uh, the third book, it that one focuses on, like, this is the book where Lyra really pushes back against the church and pushes back against the Magisterian and ultimately ends up kidnapping her mother, or who, who she was kidnapped by her mother, um, and it's all about her kind of turning against it. And then you get to see her role in the prophecy um, because essentially the way um, His Dark Materials works is uh, it, it places Lyra in this role of Eve almost because she is like, uh, she, I don't know how to describe it other than tropes, which is she's like this magical child <laughs> essentially, and like the destined, like, yeah, the destiny it's of the world yeah, that destined child, world. like the um, the kind of Harry Potter esque, like you know, has to be at the forefront of everything and kind of experience it all. So, yeah, she's. She's kind of the anointed one, which is, I guess, is kind of like a weird, uh, you know, in the context of like how religion kind of plays such a strong role in this. It's kind of that, you know, um, parallel, I guess, to uh, an another well-known messiah that kind of walks the path. Because <laughs> uh, there's even like attempting that Lyra goes through. Um, there's a tempting, there's a temptation in the cave, which is like taken straight from like the bull literature, um, but it's all subverted. Like yeah. she doesn't like she faces temptation, but she never succumbs to it. Like Pullman, like the entire basis of all of Pullman's work is essentially saying that not that sin doesn't exist, essentially saying that sin doesn't exist and it's the actions that we choose as humans that inform everything and there are actions that you can come back from and there are actions that you can't come back from and it isn't an overarching body that decides that. Um, and that's like the entire purpose of it. And he introduces a god figure, which is essentially the authority. Um, and... Uh, this is kind of like the big bad in the end of the third book. Um, oh, the third book just goes goes for it. Like if yeah. you know, if if this was a boxing match, it would be going for that killer knockout blow, and you're like, okay, you're just you plowing right into this. Like I I didn't expect for where the subtle knife finishes to where this starts. You kind of like, oh, I I didn't see this coming at all. And it's one of those things, too, is, like, um, in a lot of the critiques from, like, religious people on this book, or on this book series, it's that, oh, eh, it was okay in the first book, and then it was like, mm, this is kind of bad, but I think he still might like us, so the third one was like, oh my god, he literally is, like, wants God to be dead. Um, <laughs> and that's the trajectory of the three books in the franchise, um, and there's a lot of other stuff that happens. Like, I know that, like, there are some spoilers, but, like, 
there's so much more to this world that like I don't even classify them as spoilers because yeah. holy crap like I because growing up I read C.S. Lewis's um Chronicles of Narnia I read Lord of the Rings like I like I lived in high fantasy for a lot of my childhood and for some reason and I don't know if it's because of the fact that Pullman tries to put humanity at the center, but like there's something just so grand and and, and yet really real about his the his dark material series, um, in a way that I don't feel like the other ones are. Because and specifically Chronicles of Narnia, which Pullman hates being compared to, uh, for obvious reasons, because C.S. Lewis, but that one never doesn't feel like a fantasy. Whereas Pullman's work, like, very starkly addresses issues that are happening or that have happened in the world and, and in a very pointed and deliberate way that bridges this gap between fantasy and then, like, uh, between morality and stuff like that. Yeah, I definitely think, like, with, with a serious Lois, like, the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a very clear, like, separation. Like, we went through the wardrobe and this is their world and we're in it. Whereas the mm -hmm. dark materials, it's like, no, they're all connected. Everyone's connected. You've got, you know, Will from one universe. You've got Lyra. They go into other people's universe. And everything kind of is building towards this cataclysmic event where it's it's all connected. It all feels like it means something. Like, just because you exist in one universe doesn't mean you are safe from this. And then a lot of those themes kind of continue to carry through. Like, nowhere is, is safe from these uh, organizations. Yeah. Um, and that, that's ultimately what this is. So, like, as we move into the book, why those... Like, we are, we're... Like, the first one is just fantasy. Um, and what this contributes is... Fa fantasy, like any other genre, like science fiction, like horror, any of those things, like, they all provide elements of critique for our societies. But... Um, when you look at what Pullman has cited as his influences, it's very different. Uh, so Pullman identified three major literary influences on his dark materials. Uh, the essay on the marionette theater by Heinrich von Kleist, the works of William Blake, which uh, if you don't know who William Blake is, he is a poet who, if you were a goth emo kid, you probably knew because um, there was a vampire series. Uh, that used William Blake's, like, the tiger and all that stuff, but he's a really good poet, really dark, um, horror, a uh, lot of horror has elements in William Blake, um, and then most importantly, like I mentioned at the top, uh, Paradise Lost, um, and it's in Paradise Lost that, um, Pullman actually got the title for his series, so, uh, and it's from this passage, Into the Wild Abyss, The Womb of Nature, and Perhaps Her Grave, of neither sea nor shore nor air nor fire but all these in their pregnant causes mixed confusedly and which thus must ever fight unless the mighty maker them ordain his dark materials to create more worlds into the wild abyss the wire friend the wire fiend stood on the brink of hell and looked a while pondering his voyage for no narrow frith he had to cross um and from that passage in in paradise lost that's really where pullman sees his books like he sees his books 
as being on the brink of hell because of how much he pushes back against a lot of like these established ideas. Um, but it's just like a really cool thing because like I was gonna say, there's even some direct direct links there to something that happens later on in the Amber Spyglass as well. Yeah, it's a lot. It there's so, so many much. details. <laughs> um. And it's weird because when you think of fantasy, and especially when you think of like the the fantasy canon, everybody everybody and their work has somehow been cited as being influenced by Tolkien, or somehow has been cited as being influenced by um, by Chronicles of Narnia and that kind of stuff. But the funny thing is, is when critics compared his uh, Pullman's trilogy to the Chronicles of Narnia. Pullman said that the Narnia series was blatantly racist, monumentally disparaging of women, immoral, and evil. It's not far off base. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. And uh, if, if you're listening and you grew up Catholic or you grew up Christian, this is the cornerstone of your family or of your fantasy most of the time is, is C.S. Lewis. Um, and the Chronicles, which I love them. They're great. But then when you get older and you read them back, you're like, oh, you didn't even try to hide that this was old Jesus. <laughs> when you read those when you're older and you're like, oh, this is awkward. Oh, how did I not see this? Like, yep. Uh... That is probably the one fantasy series that I read. I reread The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I think Prince Caspian's the second one. I reread the first two like right when I started college and I was like, I'm going to put these down and preserve the memory in my mind. <laughs> yep. I can't do this right now. <laughs> it's a lot. Well, and that that's kind of what the cool thing was. Like when you pick up like his dark materials and kind of read through the trilogy of books, like he doesn't sugarcoat it. I mean, he goes after the church, but he also finds a way to incorporate religion and science and like i don't think i've ever seen a, a trilogy of books really aggressively tackle the subject kind of like he does um yeah. th there's there's no one that really like I, you know that you can think of when you think of like classic storytelling or like you know very you know popular books that really went after it in a way and again married that something that is so real to our world but then adding layering in this um fantasy and you know the mythology and everything like that so it, it's just it's something so unique and it's also the fact that like as much as it's fantasy like you said like uh he straight up calls it the church yeah. like it's not like it's not like it's disambiguation he's of very this aggressive thing that with might it. be the church it's like no the church is stealing kids the church is controlling all sources of knowledge and you will be exiled for heresy or killed. <laughs> like, well, and then again, like you talked about, like they're, they're looking to abolish like original sin, like find the source of original sin and like get, eradicate it. Um, like there's, there's so many things that he just like pulls straight from our actual reality that, that exists and like kind of like, no, I'm, I'm going into this. You, you buckle yeah. up. We're, we're tackling the subject. And, like, and the other thing is, too, is, like, in order to be a scholar, like, you essentially have to, like, seek this. You have to be deemed by the church and the, and the uh, magisterium to be a scholar. Like, you have to seek that designation. And if yeah. you don't, you are a heretic. 
Um, and that knowledge has to happen in that in those spaces with those people and only those people. Like you can't share it with anybody. You can't do anything like that. And so it really harkens back. And I mean, it's still, I mean, it still happens now where like you have religious authorities dictating what is seen as knowledge, especially when it comes to science, which is the basis of this entire book, which while it may be magic, a lot of it is about finding these different discoveries, almost like scientific discoveries, and being told, no, they're not there. The church deems this as not being there. And then it's like, no, I see it. I see it right there. <laughs> it's there. Um, and it's just really good. Um, uh, it's, it's, kind, the, it's kind of interesting how they, they set it all up as well, because like, I mean, you kind of touched that at the top of the show, but like, I think that the show handled this, the new show on HBO handled this really well. It's kind of like, it's like our world, but it's not. Like, yeah. and that's your kind of basis. Like, okay, it's slightly, some things have been slightly twisted. Like, you know, from there, like the church is still has a power and control over society. And this goes into like the fact, another piece of the fantasy, um, like, almost all fantasy books there's an entire like language within the book series where essentially pull uh pullman renames various common objects or ideas of our world but he reduces them to their most archaic uh like not descriptions but like they're the most ar archaic forms of that word like what that word was like when that word originated versus what we call it right now um and he does that to do to like to show like what Aaron said, like this difference in the world while still giving the uh, still giving the right idea, because you'll hear it and you'll think, oh, yeah, that's the thing. And you realize that it's it's a description for something that you already know. Um, and if you're one of our Patreon supporters, I will include those that list of all of those words in our show notes for you to look at, because it's actually really, really fun. Um, and of course, like we like we talked about the demons, um, which is D A E M O N S, not D E M O N S. Um, essentially, um, in our world, uh, the, you know, the world of Lyra, um, they're essentially like a human's individual's inner self, and it manifests itself as an animal-shaped demon um, that always is near to the human counterpart. And as Aaron explained earlier, that animal changes um, until they reach that sort of like coming of age piece. And that's like one of the other important things and one of the interesting things that there is such a wide audience for his dark materials is that like this is ultimately a coming of age story for both Will and Lyra. And it's something in the same way that like Harry Potter almost is. Um, and that ultimately with all the other stuff we talked about leads to censure uh because this books these book series have been censured a lot um specifically in the u.s um so the biggest change in the u.s version of the book occurred in chapter 33 and it conserves a paragraph detailing lyra's sexual awakening um and i believe this is this is the second one i think it's the second one second or the third one I didn't put the name. But uh, <laughs> essentially what happens is both the UK and the US versions begin with, as Mary said, that Lyra felt something strange happening to her body. 
What follows in the UK version includes Lyra's physiological reactions. Her breathing quickens. She feels a stirring in the roots of her hair and sensations in her breath. The US version cuts out these sentences entirely and mm. picks up again with a reference to Lyra feeling as if she's been handed a key to the house. Big difference. Yeah, really doesn't get the point across. I think that might be, I think that might be the, is that the, oh, it's so hard to delicately balance the story, but I think is that the, the Amber Spyglass? It is, I think it is the third one. Yeah, because I think it's yeah. near the end. Yeah. Um, and essentially, the people who adapted it to the US never really addressed the changes. Um, but essentially, the working consensus is that these were deemed as children's books. And so they were shown as not appropriate for a character who was one under 18 or two for readers under 18. And uh, with that censure came, uh, I believe that there are some iterations where there is some censure with some of the anti-Catholic sentiment, um, because it's very anti-Catholic. And, and ultimately, it's, it, it's anti, okay, it's anti-organizational religion, but the Catholic took the most offense because he models the entire system of the church and the magisterium on the Catholic church and how it operates between Vatican and arm pieces. So like, yeah, it's a uh, anti-Catholic, anti-Christian. Uh, and this is like, I'm using these words as a but why though, not because I believe them, but because that is how people have framed the book. And it has caused a lot of the controversy around the book series as well as the movie. And uh, so I'm gonna get into a little bit of describing it. Uh, Cynthia Grenier, who, uh, who wrote in Catholic culture, um, in the world of Pullman, God himself, the authority, is a merciless tyrant. His church is an instrument yes. of oppression, and true heroism consists of overthrowing both. Means and then William A. Off. Donahue of the Catholic League described Pullman's trilogy as atheism for kids. Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah. And all I can think of is, like, and I apologize if we have any Catholic listeners or Christian listeners, but the Old Testament God's not nice. He smite. He's a merciless tyrant. He smite you. He smite everything. <laughs> Look back, smite. <laughs> yeah, but that's why they, they wrote the New Testament, so they could feel better about all the killings. Yeah. Firstborn sons, all that, not a tyrant at all. Um, <laughs> we don't mention that one. <laughs> uh but anyway so that is some of the commentary uh specifically the atheism the atheism for kids comment is what if you look up like a lot of the articles or like uh like fun facts about his dark materials the atheism for kids comment comes up a lot and it's actually something that like fans have taken back and they're like oh do you want to teach your kids that you can be a good person without structures Try atheism for kids in his dark materials. <laughs> <laughs> half of it's jokingly, but the other half is just like, at the end of the day, like his dark materials is a moral tale and it's a tale about existing beyond the control of something and still maintaining that moral value system, which is something that Lyra not only struggles to keep, <laughs> to keep North, 
but it's something that she she overcomes and she succumbs to you know sometimes as well which is really good because you see like lyra doesn't succeed all the time like the end of the second book is literally her being kidnapped like she fails but she keeps going which is something that is also one of like my favorite parts of the series um and in response to a lot of the critiques of his series Pullman expressed surprise over what he considered to be a relatively low level of criticism for his dark materials on religious grounds, saying, I've been surprised by how little, how little criticism I've got. Harry Potter has been taking all the flack. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've been flying under the radar, saying that there's far, saying that are far more subversive than anything poor old Harry has ever said. My books are about killing God. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Which, to be fair, when you think of books getting, like, banned, it's Harry Potter, because witchcraft. Even though Harry Potter is an entire messiah narrative. People be crazy. <laughs> um, but, uh, Mr. Pullman, if you're listening to this, my Catholic school banned you. So there you go. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so... While others support this uh, this interpretation, arguing that the series, while clearly anti-clerical, is also anti-theological because of the death of God, is represented as fundamentally unimportant, uh, an, an important question. Um, the weird thing is that he actually did find support among Christians as well. Uh, most notably, Rowan Williams, who is the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, which is the Anglican Church. And he, so uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury argued that Pullman's attacks focus on the constraints and dangers of dogmatism and the use of religion to oppress, not Christianity itself. Williams also recommended the His Dark Materials series of books for inclusion and discussion in religious education classes and stated that to see large school parties in the audience of Pullman plays at the National Theater is vastly encouraging. And ultimately, Pulliam and Williams took part in a National Theater platform platform debate a few days later to discuss myth, religious experience, and representation of it in the arts. Um, and then ultimately, uh, the books are very anti-religion, um, and anti-religion in the way that it, like I've already said multiple times, as, as it forms structures on us. Um, ultimately, um, all of this kind of culminates in, like, my favorite quote from, from Pullman on this, and is that, in my view, belief in God seems to be a very good excuse on the part of those who claim to believe for doing many wicked things uh, that they wouldn't feel justified doing without such a belief. Um, beyond that, in numerous speeches, Pullman, who has described himself alternatively as an atheist and as an agnostic atheist, which not, those terms go against each other, but whatever, that's how he describes I was going to say that's, uh, it doesn't it's work like that oil way. and water, like you're one or the other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's agnostic um, atheist. That's... It's, it don't work. It's like nearly fightless. So he essentially maintains that the books are more about the dangers of rigid theological doctrines and institutions than they are anti-God or anti-faith. He also argues that his books are a testament to storytelling's ab ability to impart morals to children. Thou shalt, and this is his words, thou shalt not, 
might reach the head, but it takes once upon a time to reach the heart. And he wrote that in, in, a, in a column about his book. And ultimately, uh, because of all of this, um, the Golden Compass slash Northern Lights became the number eight on the top 100 banned books lists from 2000 to 2009. It's interesting that that one reached number eight as opposed to the Amber Spyglass. Well, I think it's the whole series, uh... actually. It might be that. Let me double check. You didn't put a link. I know. <gasps> yeah, because the the amber spyglass is way worse. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the whole series. Okay. <laughs> so, of the top one hundred banned or challenged books from two thousand to two thousand and nine, number eight is his Dark Material series by Philip Pullman. Number one is Harry Potter. <laughs> What's number two? Wow. Alice by Phyllis Reynolds Naylor. The third is The Chocolate World. Four is End of Tango Take Three. Five is Of Mice and Men. Really? They don't like they don't like what they have to do to Lenny. Yeah. Six is I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings from Maya Angelou. That one is actually really freaking disheartening. Uh, Scary Stories, which we talked about in our Scary Stories episode, is number seven. Um, and then you have TTYL, TTFM, Later, Gator series by lauren Miracle, and uh then the perks of being wallflower round out the top 10 huh yeah. i didn't expect that to be top 10 it's a very weird top 10 is it no <laughs> that's fair and i can guarantee that most of these are because of same-sex relationships because i think that's what we found out in our scary stories episode we went through like why and harry potter was witchcraft and satanism and like the other top five were that um but yeah all of that is to say people go against books for a lot of different reasons but there it's usually a religious reason or it uh not age appropriate and i'm using bunny quotes for not age appropriate um all that being said, also just uh what is also just basically how they wrap around not have to say religious reasons yes Yes, pretty much. Um, yeah. Uh, but the cool thing is, is even with all of this controversy, the book series did win a lot of awards. So the first volume, Northern Lights, won the Carnegie Medal for Children's Fiction in the UK in 1995. And in 2007, the judges of the Carnegie Medal for Children's Literature selected the Northern Lights as one of the uh, 10 most important children's novels of the previous 70 years. And in June 2007, it was voted in an online poll as the best Carnegie Medal winner in the 70-year history of the award, wow. uh, the Carnegie of Carnegies, uh, which is a very freaking high honor to have, um, especially from like a public perspective and not like a, you know, a, a people in bow ties perspective. Um, the Amber Spyglass won 2001 uh, Whitbread. Whitbread Book of the Year Award, the first time that such an award has been bestowed on a book from their children's literature category. I'm not going to lie. I really thought that said white bread the first two times I, did I read too. it. I tried not to say it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the trilogy came third in 2003 BBC's Big Red, a national poll of viewers' favorite books after The Lord of the Rings and Pride and Prejudice. Which Those are two very British books, are they not? No, yes. 
very <laughs> I have bad memories of them. Uh at the time only his dark uh, so at the time that the trilogy came uh came in third for the 2003's BBC's Big Red. Um, only His Dark Materials and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, amongst the top five works, lacked screen adaptations. Everything else had been adapted before. <laughs> that doesn't exist anymore because everything gets adapted now. <laughs> for better or for This worse. podcast I had is being adapted right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for better or for worse. It'll be on, it'll be on Hulu. <laughs> That's the better. <laughs> Hulu has good content. Because nobody ever knows that it's there. Like our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> um, so in May of twenty uh, of two uh, May of two thousand and five, Pullman attended the British Library in London to receive a formal congratulations for his work from Cultural Secretary Tessa Jow Jow Jowell Zowell. It says on behalf of the government. Tessa That's more the interesting part. Yes. They had a government the... then. Yeah. Tessa Joel? Joel? I don't know how to say her name. Joel. Uh, te Tessa, okay, Tessa Joel. Why is there a random W? Later that same month in 2000, uh, May of 2005, Pullman received the Swedish government's Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award for Children's and Youth Literature, sharing it with Japanese illustrator Ryoji Arai. Swedes regard this prize as second only to the Nobel Prize in Literature. And it comes with a value of 5 million Swedish kronor, which is approximately 385,000 euros. Found. Um, and in 2008, The Observer cites Northern Lights as one of the 100 best novels. Time magazine in the U.S. included the Northern Lights slash The Golden Compass in the list of the 100 best young adult novels of all time. Huh. People love it. <laughs> Good reason. <laughs> um, so there are also different iterations of it, so different adaptations of it. Um, BBC Radio 4 broadcasted a radio play adaptation of His Dark Materials in three episodes that each lasted two and a half hours that were first broadcast in 2003 and then rebroadcasted in 2008, 2009, and in 2017, and was released by the BBC on CD and cassette. On, and cassette. Uh, the cast included Terrence Stamp as Lord Asriel and Lulu Popplewell as Lyra. So I got um, a question. What? So when did they release this on CD and cassette? Because all I got was a rebroadcast in 2008, 2009, and in 2017, and was re released on CD and cassette. Were we even using CDs in 2009? Probably not. We definitely weren't using cassette. Wait, in no. 2009? Yeah. CDs, no. <laughs> it was all iPods back then, man. <laughs> um, and then in 2003, radio dramatization of the Northern Lights was made by RTE, which is Irish Public Radio. Uh, have you heard any of these broadcasts? I have not heard the broadcasts. No, I didn't. It's tough because when I was younger, uh, 2003, I would have been um, 18. I'm trying to think now. Doing mental math. Yeah, I was about 18. So I was not around the house much. I was I was out discovering things in the local town. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of, it's one of those weird things that like some of the uh, connotations for kind of like a BBC Radio 4 was like, oh, it's an old people's station. Um, with some of these kind of like dramatic readings, which is funny now because of how cultures moved. 
and I like things like podcasts and things like that. Like one of the things I, I discovered within the last year was like the Wolverine podcast, and I love it and it's fascinating. And I actually think back like they've been doing this stuff for years, like decades even, like on the radio, these dramatic retellings of stories. And I'm like, it's it's funny how some of it still continues to cycle round and kind of become popular again. Because uh, I think Marvel's, Marvel's getting into a little bit more of that with those podcasts. People are obviously doing podcast retellings all the time with um, uh, serial and things like that. So it's it's funny that we kind of joke about it but it does seem to kind of cycle back around every now and again yeah it was, i mean because like uh in, in the states we pretty much like npr was just what old people listen to in the car but like it's just podcasts yeah it's pretty much podcasts and npr <laughs> made an entire podcast net ooh, an entire podcast network of all of their shows that they do <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's on different on different mediums now. Like that, that same thing that people get drawn to, uh, kind of like still exists there, and it's it's kind of nice. Like I could imagine something like this having almost like a resurgence, like a podcast retelling of it. Yeah. Like, and you're on the go and you're listening, or you're going for a run, and you still want to consume media, you just don't have the the opportunity to sit and visually watch it. So. Um, so off of that and into the theater, which is another way to get mentally stimulated. Yeah, so Nicholas Heitner directed a theatrical version of the books as a two-part six-hour performance for London's Royal National Theater in December 2003, running until March 2004. It starred Anna Maxwell-Martin as Lyra, Dominic Cooper as Will, Timothy Dalton as Lord Asriel, and Patricia Hodge as Mrs. Coulter. Coulter with wow. demon puppets designed by Michael Curry. The play was enormously successful and was revived with a different cast and a revised script for a second run between November of 2004 and April of 2005. It has since been staged by several other theaters in the UK and elsewhere. And a new production was staged at the Birmingham Repertory Theater in March and April of 2009, directed by Rachel Cavanaugh and Sarah Estale. And starring Amy McAllister as Lyra, this version toured the UK and included a performance in Pullman's hometown of Oxford. Pullman made a cameo appearance, much to the light of the audience and the Oxford media, and the production finished up at West Yorkshire Playhouse in June 2009. People loved it. That's a hell of a cast, by the way. For the I know original Timothy Dalton. Theater. I know Timothy Dalton. That was the only name I knew. <laughs> Timothy Dalton as Lord Asriel is actually a really good casting. That is phenomenal casting because he definitely has that um, that delivery, especially for that, like, Lord Asriel. Like, it, yes, yeah, I can no, see I mean, that. James McAvoy is great, but like Timothy Dalton. Okay, um, <laughs> and then this all brings us to the movie oh, known no. as the Golden Compass. Oh no. Of which the filmmakers obscured an explicitly biblical character of the authority to avoid offending the viewers. Waits, who is a part of the production, declared that he would not do the same for planned sequels, whereas the Golden Compass had to be introduced to the public carefully. He said the religious themes in the second and third books can't be minimized without destroying the spirit of these books. I will not be involved with any watering down books two or three since 
since what I have been working towards this whole time in the first film was to be able to deliver to the second and third act. Um, so they yeah, but they don't realize in movies if you do terrible in the first one, you don't get a second <laughs> and third one. Yeah, which is funny because like there was uh, there were there was an article I think from Vanity Fair and they were like how his dark materials learned from the from the movie and it was like yeah they just said f the vatican and did, <laughs> did what they wanted um because the funniest really thing in line. all of like the funniest thing in all of this is the golden compass movie which had a packed cast by the way yes it had it daniel did. craig eva green uh nicole, nicole kidman. kidman yeah like it was stacked um it Fred, is freddie highmore's in it yeah ian mckellen Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, like it had it had everything to succeed, and it bombed. And essentially, a lot of that came from the way they mismanaged the narrative and paced it. And because I know that they said that this movie was just supposed to be the first book, but I remember pieces of the second book that got really watered down and like brought into the first movie or brought into this movie, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And ultimately. Their goal was to not offend everybody, anybody, but then in the official Vatican newspaper called Le Osservatore Romano, um, they said, in Pullman's world, hope simply does not exist because Aww. there is no salvation, but only personal individualistic capacity to control the situation and dominate events. Aww. They didn't like it. <laughs> and a whole bunch of Catholic groups in the United States actually called for a boycott of the film, and uh, then you also the people who uh, and, and the boy and the boycott they did because they feared that even a diluted version of the book would draw people to the best-selling trilogy and then teach children atheism. God, oh God, <laughs> the I I would be more afraid that seeing the movie would put people off reading the books. Yeah. I <laughs> would be the reverse way. Like, if I was them, like, go see the movie. It's terrible. You won't want to read the books. And I was so, I was so sad and so disappointed because, like you said, it had a stacked cast. And I was really excited because I love, like, Ian McShane, um, Ian McCallan. And then, like, I was a big fan of Daniel Craig. Like, still am. I love yeah. Daniel Craig. He's actually from Liverpool as well. So I was like, oh, this would be amazing. I'm so excited. Like, I, I think... Seeing him as like Lord Asriel, I, I could see it. Like he yeah. he has the attributes to make a great Asriel. And I still think he did. I think he did quite well. But unfortunately, it just, it it's so condensed with all this information. And it doesn't really give the time of anything to settle and breathe. Um, and then I just, the girl who played Lyra, she, she I just, I, I, for me personally being English, it was so hard to get past the accent. Like it was so, so heavily overplayed. I, I just, oh, it was it was very difficult to get past. And I think even how they portrayed a character, because like in the books, and Kate, you'll probably remember this, that Lyra is very creative and she kind of like weaves these like stories. But the way they chose to portray her within the movie was almost like she was just a liar. She just lied yeah. about certain things. And I just, it felt like a, it really undercut what her character was, how she was so intelligent and things like that. And she just kind of came across a little nasty in in, yeah. in, in ways. And it just, it, it wasn't endearing to the kind of character you would have gotten used to had you read the books. 
yeah she she comes off like really bratty almost too yeah. and it's more about like there's it, so for me reading the book and 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 i get this in daphne Keene's uh rendition of lyra is lyra is super intelligent and curious and she's adventurous she's, yes like she wants to keep moving and she wants to keep learning and she wants to build worlds and she wants to learn more and there's a like fire in her yeah it's almost like she's looking for a challenge like yes. she's outgrown the world around her and she's creating and fabricating this like world of adventure and she's trying to tackle it head on and she's very like confident and outgoing and it it's again like you said daphne Keene does a, a fantastic job of capturing that and i just don't feel like in the movie they ever really oh yeah. got that in the like movie in the movie she's like really cold like she's she, she's almost like she comes word. across very entitled yeah very spoiled yeah which is probably one of like the biggest missteps of the movie for me um there was nothing about her that i really liked no no and it's it, that's the linchpin of the movie everything kind of centers around lyra like if you can't set lyra up and her world then all those relationships just fall apart because they just yeah. don't feel believable and then you like matt said if you don't do well in that first movie you can never make it to a second because again it's all dependent on lyra who then builds that relationship with with will in the later stories mm-hmm. so and- oh I was going to say, when this came out, obviously, I'd never actually finished this movie. I've actually, like, tried, just never cared. It's been one of those, when this came out, I remember being excited for it, because I knew it was a series that I did not know, obviously, as you learned from this episode. But it obviously, coming off The Lord of the Rings, I was like, this is supposed to be a new trilogy. It's everything else. And then, obviously, between everything I saw of it and everything, I was like, well, this is, and then, like I said, I've tried to watch it, and I was like, I don't really care for this. I, w- I wanted to like it so much. I was <laughs> so happy they were. I was surprised. I, I admit, I was very surprised they'd adapted it. I was like, oh, this, lo- this looks great, and went into it. I-, I wanted to like it so much, even coming out like trying to justify certain elements of it. And I still, again, I liked some of the the way they kind of like try to to build out the initial world when they first come into it, and like the visuals of it. I was like, wow, this is really cool, and. Again, like seeing There's Lord that Asriel. Scene where Lyra walks into the the polar bears area, and it's the opening of the of the door with like yeah. four polar bears behind her. It's beautiful. Yeah. Like the set is beautiful, but it doesn't work. I know. It makes me so sad because like Eva Green is actually phenomenal. Like Eva Green, like is like yeah. the main witch in the movie like she's so good yeah and it's yeah i actually thought they did the polar bears pretty well as well they did i didn't didn't mind the polar bears so much but it was just again i I remember getting to the end and was just like they absolutely sped through that like there was so much detail like you just i think i was i almost felt sorry for people around me that like hadn't read the books and was like but there's yeah. so much good detail there and you don't really you're not extracting it all out um and i think it's funny because this movie made me feel like for the first time in a long time having read books and kind of seen adaptations that maybe movie telling 
is almost disadvantaged when trying to adapt a book because there's just there's not the time to draw out and build what you need to build. So I thought you were going to go a different way of going, this is the first time I saw how America basically will dilute something <laughs> if it goes against the religious stuff. <laughs> no, I, I, so kind of related, but not really. The first time, I got to experience my brother's first time of being crushed by a movie adaptation. It was Percy Jackson. Because that was his favorite, uh, his favorite book series, and they changed so much. I'm still um, sad because it is better, and there's a better premise and everything than Harry Potter. It was, yes, I love Harry Potter, but it was different. I like. I mean, the first movie's not bad, but the second movie's terrible. Yeah, I. Which led to another thing of like, you have to do good to get the third movie. You have to have people on set who make decisions and care and understand. Yeah, well, because it's also one of those things of, like, that, like the girl who played Lyra was, like, a child actress. Like, somebody on set should have told her, don't act like a brat. Act like you're a curious adventurer. Yeah, like, tone it down. She was I almost felt like she, she almost, like, projected her voice. Like, she tried to come off with confidence, and she just felt like she was shouting at people and, like... Yes! It was, like, confidence ah! is loud. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, and I think it also could be, could have been one of those things of like there are child actors who and and I think this ha- and, and as a horror fan like this happens a lot like you get child actors you get put on screen with like a really good actor and they either rise to the occasion just by being themselves or they completely just flop it because they like see what the older actor is doing and they're trying to be that like loud confident like person versus like uh at fantastic best for jojo rabbit taika watiti says that said that he prefers to work with child actors because most of the time a good child actor they're not acting they're just being them and they're just being a kid versus like an adult who is like and now i'm gonna walk over here (laughs) and i have a german accent in my head like that was the example that like he gave and it makes sense but it also points out why I think Lyra fails in this movie and why I don't like, like, I, I try to avoid movies with kids. Um, but every now and then, like, I, especially, like, this year, I've been hit with a lot of movies that have child stars, and I'm like, okay, you brought it. That's well, that's the good. thing. If, if it's done right and it's done well, it really is impactful because you can kind of, like, you have the nostalgic callback like Mm -hmm. oh i remember feeling like that i remember doing something crazy like that and you it's just relatable like you could always call back to your own childhood if if it's done well but this one was not done well i just the way (laughs) do you know what the worst part i just had a hard time believing that she was a kid like the way she acted i'm like yeah acts like that she's not really a kid like i I just, I just couldn't buy it. I just, that's, I just couldn't get past it. All right. So now that we've done, basically, uh, ripped this show, this movie apart again. Let's move on to the last part. Get yeah, because that movie has a forty-two on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and a fifty-one audience score. So that's pretty safe, generous, safe to be fair. Us. <laughs> I think it was the polar bears. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for the polar bears, the score would be a lot lower. 
Um, so the TV show titled His Dark Materials, which is going to be two seasons, and the second season got renewed, or the show itself got renewed for a second season before the premiere even aired. And a lot of that was done because the actors were so young, they had to like, we need them to be this age when we record this, so we have to go now. Um, and the HBO and the BBC essentially just backing, like backing that play. Um, uh, I need to find it specifically, but it, it's either the BBC or HBO's most expensive series ever made. I think it's BBC's. Well, BBC Probably. is Planet Earth, I believe, or was at one time. I thought I was going to say I thought the second season of Westworld took that title as being oh, one yeah. of the most expensive. It is, it's, it's, it's a BBC. BBC. It's yes. a BBC. Yeah. So his Dark Materials is the most expensive BBC production. I think had it not been for the involvement of BB, the uh, sorry HBO, I don't know if BBC would have felt as confident going into this. So it's probably yeah. why they they took the risk, knowing it was being co-financed, co-produced. And it, and it and it's filling that um, it's filling that fantastical hole that Game of Thrones left. Yes. In like a very different way, but a same like storytelling way. Um, yeah. So it's BBC's most expensive show. It. I'm so mad that it premieres in the UK on Sundays. Well, now you know the how U the UK feels with Game <laughs> of Thrones. <laughs> because we would get it on Sunday, and it's same with Watchmen actually. So we get it on Sunday, and they don't get it till the day after. So it's ah, it's it's interestingly okay. reversed for once. So they're probably like, yes, the one and only time this will happen. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, but That's the only reason I moved to the US just to get all this stuff earlier. <laughs> but what about mm. Star Wars though? One uh, one of our Ugh. one of our, our UK based writer gets to see it like a full day ahead of everybody else. Yeah, it's something to do with release dates. Like their released their release dates are on like Wednesdays instead of Thursday. It's just like the accepted day. Yeah, when... UK usually gets about a day early for yeah. a lot of a lot of movies. They're in the so future, goddamn them. <laughs> it's from all them years where they got it two months later. I remember those days. You'd, you'd have someone like you'd have friends who go to Florida and they'd be like I just saw this amazing funnily enough it was Austin Powers but they were like I just saw this amazing movie called Austin Powers and like telling me all about it and then it, it didn't come to like cinemas until like six eight months later and you're like oh I heard about this and yeah back in the, the stone <laughs> age oh that being said, it is, uh, as we said, co-produced by HBO, and HBO is distributing it internationally, so that's what we watch it through. And it stars Daphne King as Lyra, James McAvoy as Lord Azriel, Lin-Manuel Miranda as Scoresby, which I'm very excited for, but very, like, the thing happens, and I don't want that to happen, but I know it happens. Um, and the series received its premiere in London on October 15th, and broadcast began on BBC One in the United Kingdom November 3rd, so this past weekend, and HBO got it November 4th, and yeah. It was That's, brilliant. I mean, the first, what did you think about the first episode, like adaptation-wise, acting-wise? So you, obviously you and I were, were live tweeting because we just couldn't help ourselves uh i i was just really impressed like again daphne Keane was just she was such a relatable character as far as lyra and again i i liked how when she was adventuring around they gave her the time and breath to kind of like run and have that story so you can build out 
like how big the college was and like her running across the rooftops and you kind of like have that relationship and again you build on that like creativeness of like you know how her and roger kind of chase each other around and I, I it was just it was really good I, I really enjoyed it and then i still felt like they pulled back enough that they still left the audience with a lot of questions like i know a, a few people in our group were kind of talking about like well what is all this stuff like why do they have animals and you know like what's this dust stuff and i'm like did you just give it time it, it works itself through so uh, yeah, no, I was, I was, I was really impressed and really happy with it, and I'm glad it felt it had a good pace about it, which again was my number one complaint with the movie. It just it felt too fast, and they crammed it in. So I'm happy they're just kind of like letting it breathe a bit and kind of like building upon the introduction of it all. So yeah, how did you feel? I loved it. <laughs> Shit, I I gave it a ten out of ten. Um, there was such scale to it um so i think that deciding to have the first time we see daphne as lyra um being her playing with roger and running through the halls and seeing how small she is in comparison to jordan college and how adventurous she is like while roger is taking the stairs she's jumping off of them and like she really defines herself in those moments as that little adventurer and one of the things that I don't like in fantasy, sci-fi, horror, any of it, I don't like it when I'm told the rules of the world. I don't like it when I'm, it, it, by characters, right? I don't like exposition has to be done well. Um, and what I liked for episode one is episode one just starts with title cards, explain, just slowly lowering you, like it, you're in your world, and then the title card slowly lowering yeah. you into what his dark materials is. And then that's it. You don't get explained anything else. You just get dropped into the world and they start talking about dust and demons. And Lyra takes a swig of wine or something. <laughs> and like it just goes straight into it. And that for me was when I knew I was going to like it in like that first 30 minutes because it was focused on delivering us characters and experiences and it wasn't talking down to the audience and it wasn't over explaining to the audience. And I think that a lot of that has to do with it being from the BBC yeah. because at the end of the day, it is, it is produced for a British audience. It is produced for an English audience, for people who have grown up with these books and obviously like rate it like the top book ever, uh, the top book series ever. So they're like, I think had it come out of the U.S. for a U.S. audience, I think we would have seen a lot more exposition versus understanding that like, oh, this is a part of the culture. We all kind of can reference these things. We're just going to drop you into it, which I really like. Yeah, I think that's that's the best way to do it sometimes. Just like don't treat the audience members like they're idiots. Like they'll get it. Just, just give them time and let the story build. And there's something sometimes the intrigue and the mystery around certain things that kind of like pulls people in. Like you, you'll either kind of like see it and be like, okay, I want to know more. Or, or sometimes, you know, these kinds of stories just aren't for you and people just like, oh, I don't really get it. Like, or sometimes you just need a couple of those episodes to kind of really get into it and kind of make that decision. But yeah, they really didn't hold back as well. And I, I loved how when they did show McAvoy being Azrael, they kind of really 
leaned into kind of like his, how cold he is. Like you, you see that one scene with Roger and he's like, she's special. And he goes, everyone's special. And you're like, oh, damn. Oh, it's supposed to be his uncle, like her uncle. And you're like, oh. It's so good. Uh, so what are one of the things, that, what's something that you're excited to see? I, I, I love the fact that this is on Weekly because it, it drives a conversation online, kind of like what Watchmen does. I don't every... want to talk to people online. They suck. <laughs> well, I'll talk to them for you. Matt. Yes, we'll talk, Eric, because I enjoy that. Yes. I love yeah, having Every these... time I talk to people online about things, then I don't want to watch it anymore. <laughs> See, that's why I like to do the podcast because I, I love the engagement. Like, I can talk about this stuff all day, every day. It's so fun. And then here, seeing how people, different people engage with it and connect with it and different points to pull up because that's what everyone has a different perspective they bring to it. So I always like that uniqueness that of a good story, you can see so many different elements come out of it. And I think his Dark Materials definitely touches on so many different things. Um, but as far as what, I, definitely what I'm excited about is it's it, oh, it's so hard to say but like seeing those relationships build with like lee scoresby and uh i always butcher his name but i i i trying to think of his name the polar bear and things like that because they hey, the polar bear and lyra do form this great relationship and then like hair and will and things like that but then ultimately there's also that like other side that as as hopeful as the relationships are they, they you know, there's always misery around the corner. Yeah. It's so sad. My main thing is I'm just hoping they go full, like, balls to the wall, like, we're doing this. Because um, it's easy for the first book. I yes. Want, like, when, when the second and third come into play, oh. I want it to be, like, I want them to go hard, which I think they will because they went hard that first episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because once you get into any kind of story from... um the subtle knife and the amber spy. I mean, it gets so weird. Like, I just I want to talk about it. It's so weird, <laughs> especially when you get into the amber spyglass. I mean, they really went full tilt on it. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to be curious to see how they address all of that because you know there's going to be discussion. It's re there's going to be a narrative, and that's what I always found interesting is it just gets people talking about it. Like the fact yeah. that like people say it's like anti-organizational um, and kind of like anti-Christian and things like that. But like, I always think it's, it's, it, it starts the conversation and it has people talking in a theological sense, like especially with where this one will lead. And I, discussions are good for this kinds of thing. Like, yeah. um, I, we, I, one of the most interesting classes I took was a religious studies class and it was more from a theological aspect where you kind of discuss like, you know, God is perfect. Well, what does that mean? Like, you know, like, you know, and just kind of going through it and having these long, long formed kind of discussions and debates about it. I mean, that's what a lot of Judaism is, is based around the rabbis discussing and interpretations and perspectives and on uh, any kind of the religious texts and things like that. So, yeah, it's I'm excited to see what everyone else will make of this as it moves on. Awesome. Well, cool. well uh, when the season ends, we can all come back and do a recap show, and we can all discuss it then. Okay. Yeah, I don't have to I'm, talk with idiots online. I'm going to hold you to that, though. That, that'd be real fun. Hold me or him? You, Matt, because <laughs> I'm sure Eric... I'll, 
all I had to do is say, hey, Aaron, you want to come talk his dark materials? And Aaron was like, here my available times. Can we make this happen? <laughs> Except I don't mind doing recaps of shows. It's trying to get everybody else to show up, record, well, get I'm it edited. I'm watching it weekly. Day. So. He said, I just don't like weekly thing because I don't have time for that. It's only eight I don't sleep. So That's what I'm saying. I can do that at night. I mean, I can start at seven, be done by four. I'm good. I've I've gone back and forth because I feel like sometimes I love this stuff and I like the fact that it's weekly now and you can kind of like enjoy it has a longer shelf life. Sometimes when you like binge or like a movie, when a movie comes out, it's got like a shelf life of like two weeks. Like everyone loves it, like Endgame. It's got like shelf life have, of like three weeks. Don't have bird type mentality, squirrel. Oh, Everybody it, just squirreling around. It, it, everyone bends through it though. Like when a show drops like the Umbrella Academy on Netflix, like everyone loved it for like a two week oh, period it was and then it was blip. gone. Yeah, yeah, it was just gone. Like it's it's fallen off the boys. Everyone loved the boys for like two, three weeks and then it was just gone. It was on to the next thing. I, I mean, like, I'll still come back and talk about the boys, just nobody else will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I guess is that I guess with uh, everything you talked about, is, uh, why does his dark materials matter for you? This will be our last, our final thoughts on it. Uh, there's just so many good elements. Like it's just a book you can kind of keep coming back to in different symbolism and like even just the way they they describe family like families constantly portrayed differently like when you have like like the likes of the egyptians it's it's just it's got so many good messages and it, i i just love the depth of the story and again pullman really just dove into this and addressed all kinds of of, of topics that just really have stuck with me for a long long time yeah uh my final thought or matt you want to go for your final thoughts um, I mean, it was nice learning about it. I kind of knew about the series, obviously. Um, I guess, obviously, when these books come out would be not a time of me read. When did these books? Let me read them. 1995 sure. to 2007. Yeah, well, it says 95, 97, 2000. Yeah, um, obviously, they came out in a time when don't really, and where I come, grew up, obviously, these books are definitely probably banned. I couldn't even get science books where I come from, let alone oh, this. Um, but no, so I mean, I knew it existed. Like I said, obviously, I tried watching The Golden Compass about it, and I was kind of excited when it was announced because I kind of knew about it. But over that, like as in like, you know, like, oh, this is a trilogy, et cetera. Um, and then that sucked. And then just kind of never bothered to read the books as we've been through at this point of... I'm not Adrian of I hate books, <laughs> but... I just didn't read those books. But no, I did know when the TV show was coming, I was saying, and I probably will eventually watch it, I just do not like watching things weekly anymore. I gave that up about 15 years ago, or whatever, Netflix came along, and I'm not going back. So you cable 2.0 people can go away. <laughs> um, I think I've said all I had to say about uh, His Dark Materials. I love it. I love the investigation that puts into how everything plays in our world and power structures, and, and it does it in a way by building a... I love Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Tolkien is... Like, my Bible is J.R.R. Tolkien's world. The Silmarillion, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, like, everything. That being said, at this point, I have seen so many iterations of that material with those creatures doing those things and his dark materials is something that is so drastically different and yet still ex 
dream fantasy that I think that it is going to get a lot of people into the genre in a different way and to see more uh, more of what the genre of fantasy has to offer. Um, so, yeah. That's Be good. what I'm excited for. I'm and so if we excited. get atheism for kids, that's great. Yes, atheism for kids. <laughs> <laughs> Printed on the um, pamphlet. Well, good. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, thank you again for coming on, Aaron. Um, thank you. Why don't you tell everybody where they can uh, find you on the interwebs, where they can find your podcast, where they can listen to you? Oh, God, I've got to remember details now. All right, well, you can find me. Uh, I'm majority of my time is spent uh, heavily on Twitter, at BritishCPA. Uh, we also do a lot of stuff uh, at Nerds Social Club on Twitter as well, so we're always looking for trailers and news articles and just in general we're just always there for engagement and discussion we love talking about anything and everything to do with fandom so i will always be available on there and i also do some fun comic reviews on but why those sites so go read those yeah <laughs> and his comic reviews are really great oh yeah you always <laughs> do your formatting yeah <laughs> i don't um, read comics so yeah, and as always, you can find the podcast at But Why Though PC on all of your social media, but specifically Twitter. It's where we're most active. You can also find our Patreon if you want to support us a little bit more and throw like a dollar our way at patreon.com slash But Why Though PC. And you can find me on Twitter at Oh My Myth Randier. And Adrian has not talked for the rest of this episode, as I'm sure you noticed. He had an emergency he had to go attend to, so he had to leave in the middle of the episode but he is here in spirit and or Discord chatting. So, uh, Matt, where can they find you? 